Well, good morning, Bay Life. I hope that you are doing well. My name is Travis Lowe, and I'm the teaching pastor here at the church. And thank you so much for joining us once again online. It's out of an abundance of caution that we've made the decision as a church to step back into exclusively streaming our services for the month of July. Obviously, these are challenging times, and we as God's people, we want to walk with wisdom. We want to walk with discernment as we love our neighbors well and make every effort to ensure that they are kept safe. But I hope that we as a church can also rejoice in some of these challenging times just by knowing what, what the scriptures say about the rule and reign of Jesus, that even here, in the midst of all this uncertainty, Jesus is sovereign. Sovereign over all. And, and what James tells us is that when we lack wisdom in the face of difficulty, we can ask God for it and he grants it freely. And I would just ask that you continue to pray uh, for our church and for our leadership that God would continue to grant us wisdom in the days ahead. Now, if you're joining us online and you want to continue to support the ministry here of Baylife Church, we've made that really easy for you. You can go to baylife.org slash give and set up your tithes and offerings through that. And with all of that being said, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. You know, over the last several months, we've been walking together as a church through this portion of Scripture. And that originally began back in March when we first entered into quarantine in response to the COVID pandemic. And during that time, I think we sort of naively believed that this series and that this quarantine itself would, would be something that would maybe last a, a month or so. And yet here we are, four months in, with what seems to be a long road ahead. And it's along the way that, that Mark and I have felt the Lord leading us as a church to continue to work through this letter in its entirety. Where we first wanted to just tackle chapters one and two, we've decided to just finish First Peter because it is so profoundly relevant to us. And so that's what we've done week by week. With the Spirit's help, we have done our best to bring this ancient letter to bear on the needs of the church today. The last few weeks in particular, as we've been working through this letter, Peter has been teaching the church what it looks like to bear witness to Jesus in a world that has gone wrong. Peter's readers were Christians who found themselves at odds with the wider society. Their beliefs, their customs, and their lifestyle made them stand out among their Roman neighbors and even their Roman family members. And, and very often, that made Christians the target of persecution. They were often ostracized by the people that had once known and loved them. And so Peter writes to the church to help them understand their relationship to power what it looks like to be a faithful presence in the midst of a world that has gone wrong. And, and make no mistake, Peter is writing to Christians who are in a world and a society that has gone wrong. He's not writing to people living in a utopia. He's, he's writing to people living in a culture that has been fractured by sin, where things are not as they should be. And so after addressing the Christian's relationship to government and 1 Peter 2, he, he addresses the relationship between servants and masters, and then he turns his attention in our passage for today towards the issue of marriage. 
Now, I'll, I'll just admit to you up front that I'm only about nine months into being married, which means that almost every married person watching this is going to have a whole lot more life experience than I do. And I, I just want to acknowledge that up front. There are, are many of you who are far older and wiser in this regard. But, but even with nine months under my belt, I think there's at least two things that I can say about marriage. The, the first of which is that it is so good. Re- really and truly, marriage is the best thing that has ever happened to me. Stepping into this covenant relationship with my wife, Mickey, ha- has been one of the most tremendous things I've ever experienced. It has been one of the clearest Uh, senses that I've ever gotten of God's grace and God's kindness. And and in marriage, I have found my capacity to understand the gospel increased in ways that I never thought possible. We as the church need to do a better job of holding that out for people. Uh, So often when when couples get engaged and are are journeying towards marriage, we're quick to, to tell them how difficult it is. We're quick to issue warnings. We're quick to remind people that marriage isn't all sunshine but we're not nearly as quick to say, listen, this is a good thing you've stepped into. We need to be willing to hold that out. But the second thing that I can tell you, which we were told as we stepped into the engagement process, is that marriage is hard. Really and truly, there's a sense in which Disney movies and and quirky indie rom-coms that so many of us were raised on, they don't do justice to the reality of being in covenant union with another sinful person. And part of, part of me understanding the gospel better through my marriage has come as the result of marriage showing me how much of a sinner I am. Because in, in marriage, all of my quirks, all of my sinful disposition, all of my bitterness, all of my grudge holding, all of the snarky comments that nobody heard when I lived by myself with my cat in the apartment, that's all being revealed to the person who matters the most to me. There's also a sense for, for me as, as the husband in which I feel the weight of, of standing in a position of spiritual leadership within our family. And it, if I'm just being honest with you, most days I feel terrifyingly ill-equipped and under-sanctified for the task that God's called me to. But what helps Mickey and I to walk through the, the difficulty of marriage is the fact that Mickey and I both believe the gospel We are both committed to the authority of scripture. We're both committed to repentance and reconciliation. We both find ourselves at the foot of the cross daily in need of God's grace, even when it's hard. But our lives are pointed in the same direction. We're chasing after the same thing. What does it look like though, when this isn't the case in marriage? What, what happens when one person has come to believe the gospel and the other one doesn't? That's ultimately the question that's at the heart of our text for the morning. That's what Peter is writing about today. And it's bound up with everything else that he's been saying about living as a faithful witness in the midst of a situation that isn't easy to navigate. And so I want to read our passage for us just so we can hear the whole thing. And then I want us to to work through this particular portion of scripture with care and with subtlety and with attention to what God is saying. So in light of this situation, a believer married to an unbeliever, Peter says this. 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I just want to be clear up front as as we begin our time together in this portion of Scripture. This is a difficult passage. It's a passage that has been made all the more difficult because even in the very recent past, portions of Scripture like this have been misinterpreted and misapplied. There, there have been cases in which men have taken this phrase submission and they've leveraged it to justify domineering, cruel, tyrannical, and abusive behavior towards their wives. There have also been times where churches have encouraged women to stay in dangerous and harmful situations, pointing to passages like this. And no doubt there are some sisters who will be listening to this sermon who have had such an experience. So I just want to say, very clearly, up front. First of all, I am so sorry for the way that the word of God has been misapplied and twisted and abused towards such a destructive and painful purpose in your life. This is an abuse of the scriptures. It is an offense to the spirit of Jesus who authored them. And if you do find yourself in a situation where you are at risk or are the victim of physical, verbal, or emotional abuse, we as a church want to help you escape that. That's why we have organizations like Hope for Her on our campus. We're committed to standing in solidarity with victims and and helping them to find healing in Jesus' name. So let me be clear as we step into this passage Peter is not encouraging here women to stay in situations where they are in threat of imminent danger from an abusive spouse. What Peter actually has in mind here are women who are experiencing the potential social cost of choosing to follow Jesus when their spouse has rejected the gospel. And and this cost would have been real and it would have been profound for the original readers of this letter. In order to really grasp it, We're going to have to do a bit of historical work. So I'm I'm going to ask you to bear with me here because we're going to go verse by verse. And and in almost every case, in each verse, there's some historical context that I need to give you so that we can hear this letter the way that the original readers would have heard it. So with that being said, Peter begins in verse 1 by saying, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even as some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the the." by the conduct of their wives. Now here, 
Peter sounds an awful lot like Paul in Ephesians chapter five, where Paul encourages men to take the spiritual lead in discipling, serving, and encouraging their families. You know, my own marriage, that's often looked like me trying to be the one who takes initiative to set up time in the morning for us to pray together and read the scriptures. It looks like me constantly asking the question, where is God leading our family? How can I serve and empower my wife better so that she can flourish in her God-given callings? But the situation in Ephesus is not the same as the one that Peter is addressing. Paul, in Ephesians 5, is writing to those who are in the ideal scenario where both parties are believers. Peter is not writing to such a situation. The situation here is not the same because the women that Peter is addressing in his letter are married to men who are unbelievers. The the phrase that Peter actually uses is that these are men who disobey the word. And this is a phrase Peter's actually used earlier in his letter in chapter two when he describes Jesus as a stumbling block. He talks about those who have rejected Christ as being ones who have disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. And so the picture Peter is painting of of the husbands in this situation, these are not men who are indifferent to Christianity. These are not people who think, you know, maybe this is true, maybe it's not, I'm still thinking it through. The the people, the women in the churches of Asia Minor that Peter is writing to are, are finding themselves in marriages with men who are openly hostile to Christianity. Now, this is a difficult situation to be in but it was one that was exceptionally common in the early church. And it was one that that put these women in a particularly challenging spot. And here we need to do just a a little bit of historical work. Uh, Because in the ancient world, women were very often not treated with the dignity and the respect that they deserved. They were often viewed as second-class citizens. Their opinions were dismissed and not taken seriously. And this was an offense to God and a profoundly evil thing about ancient society. And when it came to marriage, the understanding was that the wife would completely lose her identity as she was joined to the husband. Plutarch is an an ancient writer who gives advice to husbands as they're stepping into marriage. And he tells them that your wife should get rid of all her friends and her friends should be your friends. And he says that your wife should forget the gods of her youth and only worship your gods. This was the ancient understanding of marriage. That when women stepped into this relationship, they abandoned the faith of their childhood and they adopted the faith of their husband. Things are different in our society. When, when my parents met, my dad had been raised in a Southern Baptist context. He had grown up singing the great Southern Baptist hymns, the old rugged cross. He grew up with fiery Baptist preaching. My mom, on the other hand, was raised as an Episcopalian. She grew up reciting the creeds. She grew up making the sign of the cross. My dad recognized very quickly, and I'm grateful that he did, that he was way, way, way out of my mom's league. And he made up his mind to do whatever it took to to win my mom over, which meant that when they got married, my dad made the jump from being a Southern Baptist to being an Episcopalian. And this is common in our day. Uh, so, so many people switch denominations or even religions in the interest of aligning themselves with the person that they're marrying. 
But in the ancient world, for Peter's writers, husbands never would have made that jump. It was exceptionally rare. The assumption was the wife will believe whatever the husband believes. And when that wasn't the case, it became a source of controversy and gossip in the village. I say all this because this is the situation that Peter's readers are living in. This is the situation into which he gives this advice. These women have come to believe the gospel. And this was common in the ancient world because the gospel said to the oppressed and the marginalized, you have dignity, you have worth, you have value, you were made in the image of God and you will inherit the kingdom of God. But these women had already taken a profound step by believing the gospel. They had already taken a revolutionary and countercultural step of believing in Jesus when, even when their whole culture had told them that they didn't have the right to do that. And so Peter speaks to encourage them, to, to let them know, to remain steadfast, to be faithful to Jesus, even when it's contrary to what society says is acceptable. So far, we've been painting a picture of the tension that Peter's readers would have been experiencing, but the reality is this isn't just an ancient reality. This sort of tension isn't unique to the first century. I know well that there are women in our church and probably some men who have married someone that they deeply love, but at some point along the way, you've fallen in love with Jesus and the gospel and your spouse hasn't. This is difficult. This can be incredibly painful. And there's a couple ways when we find ourselves in that situation that we can process something like this. The gospel will always be a stumbling block, but sometimes it can become a source of tension and division and throw gasoline on the fire of our arguments. It can also make us critical or harsh or or demeaning with our unbelieving spouse, always questioning their choices, chastising them for their lack of faith. Or we can follow the direction that Peter gives us. We can view our marriage as a mission field. We can see it as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus in the most profound and intimate and transparent ways. That's the way that Peter points his readers to. That's the way that he points us to. And he kind of does this play on words here because he describes these husbands as men who disobey the word, who reject the word of God as it's revealed in the scriptures and in Christ. And then he says to these women, if your husbands won't listen to the word, then win them without words. If If your husband won't listen to what the scriptures say, then win them with your actions. Show them how the gospel transforms your life so that they can't deny its power. And I think he says the same to those of us in such a situation. So what does this transforming power of the gospel look like? Well, Peter goes on to say that this sort of transformed like life stays away from outward adornments, things like braids, jewelry, and fancy clothing, and it instead seeks the inward adornment of a quiet and holy life. So, so what's, what's going on here? Certainly, there have been people who have misread and over-applied this passage 
as if it forbids all jewelry as something sinful. Now, I'm just going to be candid with you. My wife has a ring on her finger at this very moment that took a whole lot of work and almost all of my savings to buy. So clearly, I don't think the Bible prohibits jewelry. That's not what Peter is after here. The the reality is that he's doing some, some cultural work here as well. And in order to understand the nature of Peter's warning and command, we, we have to understand the culture. Let, let me just kind of explain what I mean by this. Um, suppose that someone were to dig up a sermon. Let's say it was a sermon I preached a thousand years from now. And in that sermon, I say something like, you probably shouldn't watch late night TV or HBO after like midnight. Now, with no cultural context, somebody's going to assume that this is some sort of like a weird spiritual law that thinks that TV after a certain hour is inherently sinful. When the reality is that what we know is that the later the night goes, the fewer restrictions there are on the content that can be put on TV. The command is not about what hour you watch television. The warning is about putting yourself in potentially compromising situations. I think that's at the heart of what Peter is getting at here. He's not saying that jewelry or dyeing your hair or anything like that is inherently sinful, but in the culture of Peter's day, it carries a certain weight, a certain connotation. Joel Green is a New Testament scholar, and he he comments on this passage and says the following, that in the ancient world, clothing expressed not only your status and your wealth, but who you were at the very core of your being. In this culture, what you wore told people who you were, what group you belonged to, and what you took seriously, what you valued. We've all probably felt this at some point or another, struggling to keep up with the latest fashion trends, trying to present our best selves and make a a good impression on those who are important to us. For me, I probably felt this most acutely in high school. Back when I was in high school, all those years ago, it was right during the time when vans had started to become cool. They'd started to kind of escape skating culture and they'd started to spread into the wider culture. And I desperately wanted to fit in with the group of kids that wore vans. I wanted to be identified with these people. I wanted to be seen as cool and worthwhile in their eyes. But this was also before I had a steady job so I could pay for some of the excessive stuff that I wanted. I was a part-time guitar teacher. But Walmart had these knockoff versions of the shoes that I wanted. They looked almost like the Vans that everybody thought were cool, but they were about 50 or $60 cheaper. And so I scraped together all of the cash that I had from teaching guitar lessons and I went and I bought a pair. And I wore those shoes because I wanted to say something to the wider culture of my school. I wanted to say to them, I am one of you. I listen to the right bands. I know the right people. I'm a part of the right crowd. I'm a part of this particular culture. And you know, it was only a few years later that I actually became friends with somebody who ran in that circle once we were both out of high school. And he told me that he actually hated me in high school because I wore those stupid shoes. So clearly it didn't work, but that's beside the point. The point is that clothing communicates even in our day, but in the ancient world, it was even more true. 
And so these things that Peter lists here, they were often associated with wealth, with status, with power. One Old Testament scholar, Edmund Clowney, says it was also fairly common for Roman men to push their wives to dress in these ways so that they could objectify them and hold them out in front of wider society. And so Peter says, don't do these things. Don't have any part in that. Don't give in to culture's rat race. Don't give off the appearance that what you have is more important than who you are and how you walk with integrity before the face of the God who's redeemed you. And I think he says the same thing to us today, especially for those of you whose spouses aren't believers. Do you want to show your husband that Jesus has overcome the world? One of the ways that you might do that is to measure your worth by the standards of Jesus and the cross and to refuse to measure your value by the world's standards. And then Peter holds out the example of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. He tells her that she worked to cultivate this gentle spirit of godliness. This quiet spirit, Peter says. And this is not Peter saying that women should not speak or should not give voice to their concerns and their thoughts. In reality, the language that Peter uses, these adjectives are many of the adjectives Jesus uses to describe himself in the Gospels. That he is meek and lowly and gentle. He says to these women with non-believing husbands, live in an incarnate way. Live so that even if your husband will not listen to the words of Jesus, your life will show them the character of Jesus. And he points out Sarah, Abraham's wife. And he he uses this example that probably struck us all as a, a little bit odd. He says that Sarah referred to Abraham as Lord. This was how she showed reverence to him. What's Peter getting at here? I'm sure that this made a lot of us do double takes. Well, he is not saying that there should be this sort of groveling, um, unhealthy relationship between husbands and wives. Actually, the Greek word here that Peter uses is used in the New Testament sometimes to refer to Jesus. It's kyrios. And it's used in the Old Testament sometimes to refer to the one true God in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. But there are other instances, especially in the book of Genesis, where this is simply used as a way of showing respect to another person. Kind of the the modern equivalent of Mr. or Sir. That's something that Edmund Clowney, again, points out. It's a way of honoring or, or showing deference to another person. And I think this is the posture that Peter is trying to encourage. Rather than showing contempt or frustration or hostility or anger towards non-believing husbands, Peter encourages these faithful women, to honor them even when it might be a little bit frustrating and even when sometimes it doesn't feel like they deserve it. But, but I want to be clear, this is not licensed to be a doormat. Sarah is Peter's example for what this sort of godly life looks like and there are numerous times where Sarah tells Abraham to his face that he is being a total idiot. And yet, I I think Peter recognizes something that is is just so important. And that's what he's grasping at here with this reverence and this, this humility and this gentleness. Nobody, nobody is converted through criticism. 
Of course, God can work however he sees fit, but I'll just confess to you, I have never met someone who told me, you know, I became a Christian because I had a friend who was a believer and they kept telling me how ignorant and sinful and stupid I was and that just captured my heart and made me fall in love with Jesus. That's not how affections work. That's not how the human heart works. Peter knows that a critical spirit can eat holes in a marriage and can undermine opportunities for for a a non-believing spouse to come to know Jesus. So Peter calls the women of the church to, to, to look to Sarah as an example. And as he unpacks the example of Sarah, he says that, that the women of the church live as the spiritual daughters of Sarah when they do what is good and when they show no fear in the face of what is frightening. In the last few days, as I've been kind of preparing for this sermon, I've just been turning it over in my head, this phrase, to, to do what is good and to not fear anything that is frightening. And what an astounding picture Peter paints of, of a godly woman. One who is committed to, to living a, a righteous life, to doing what is good, but also someone who is fearless. Not just fearless in the face of simple things, but fearless in the face of what is frightening. Why? Because she has a steadfast confidence in the goodness, the power, the sovereignty, and the kindness of God, and so she can face anything without fear. I'll tell you, as a a newly married man, not knowing what our future will look like when children are brought into the picture, if, if God gives my wife and I girls, these are the sort of daughters I want to raise. Women who walk in righteousness, who value what God values, and who are absolutely fearless because they have an unshakable confidence in the power of God revealed in the face of Jesus. So far, Peter has spent most of his time addressing the women in this congregation who have non-believing husbands. That's not because he has an ax to grind. What, What we know from church history beyond the New Testament and through the first few hundred years of the church, is that this was the most common situation. And so Peter speaks the most to the most common situation. And yet, he still turns his attention to the men. Even though it was less common for men to be married to unbelieving spouses, he still has something to say. We don't get off the hook. In verse 7, He turns his attention to us. And he says, Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. The first thing he says is that that we as husbands should live with our wives in an understanding way. The, The literal Greek here is that we should live with our wives according to the knowledge. And most scholars take this to refer specifically to the knowledge of God. So what Peter is doing here is he's urging us as men to love our wives, to care for our wives, to serve our wives, to live with our wives in, our wives in light 
of our knowledge and fear of the Lord. But, but can I just tell you, there is a famine of this in the church today. Because so many men think that the cultivation of the knowledge of God is only something for pastors and religious leaders to do. And so we farm that out. We farm out that responsibility to other people and we fill our lives with stupid and useless things. We say things like, don't make me open up a book of theology and read it. That's the pastor's job. Don't make me sing in church. That's what the band is for. Don't make me pray in public because that makes me feel weird. And don't make me open up my Bible and explain to my kids what it means because that's what children's ministry is for. And can I just tell you, if that is your mentality, you need to repent of it. Because Peter says that part of loving your wife well and serving her well is knowing and loving Jesus. And caring for your partner in light of your relationship with your Lord. Can, can I just speak to the, to the single women in our congregation right now? Can I plead with you? Do not even consider someone who doesn't take their walk with Jesus seriously. You have worth, you have value, you have dignity, and you deserve to be honored by someone whose ideas about love and faithfulness have been shaped by the gospel. That's what Peter calls us to. And then he encourages men to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. This is another one of those verses that has widely been misunderstood and applied throughout church history. So I, I just want to be really clear here that when Peter refers to women as the weaker vessels, he is not saying that they are in any way intellectually, spiritually, or morally inferior to women. He's not commenting on any of those things. What he's most likely commenting on is what is generally true from a physical perspective. Generally speaking, men have more physical strength than women. But even here, I think we have to admit that's not always the case. There are plenty of women who are stronger than men physically. And yet in Peter's culture, the men were the ones who very often held a physical advantage. They were the ones that were trained as soldiers. They were the ones that participated in many of the athletic events. They were the ones who fought in wars. They were the ones who were trained to use weapons. And very often, this physical advantage was used, this power was used in abusive ways. Of course, that's, that's not just true in Peter's day. That's true in our day as well. There's, there's not a, a week that goes by in which we don't hear uh, some horrific story about a, a man in power who has failed to honor women and has instead treated them in ways that are evil, and abusive and sinful and contrary to the commands of Jesus. But Peter says here that among God's people, this should not be. And he actually says something really extreme. I, I don't know if you've caught this or not, but at the end, he says that you should live with your wives according to the knowledge of God to honor the, the women in your life and the one to whom you are married so that your prayers might not be hindered. Peter says that the failure 
to honor women, a failure to show them dignity and respect, it will stand in the way of your prayers. So, so men, let that sink in for a minute. Your misogynistic joking, your harshness with your wife, your domineering personality that you just justify by saying, that's the way I was raised, your defense of locker room talk, your failure to honor your wife, Peter says it blocks your prayers. That is how seriously God takes this sort of wicked behavior. Why is that? It's because Peter says that we are heirs together of the kingdom of God and the gift of salvation. And that is a profound statement of dignity and worth and value in a world like the one in which this letter was written. And in many ways, like we see in our world today, where women are often treated as second-class citizens, Peter tells the church, these women are your peers, they're your equals, and you will both inherit the kingdom of God that Jesus ushered in, so act like it. So Bay Life, may we act like it. For those of us living with non-believing spouses, may we, we make the most of this opportunity to win them for the gospel in the way that we embody the character of Jesus. For those of us married to believers, husbands especially, may we see our wives for what they are, fellow daughters of God, conquerors and co-heirs with Christ, worthy of dignity, respect, honor. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you knowing that, that the call of your word is one that we cannot answer on our own. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Help us to love our spouses. Help us to honor them. Help us to make visible the love of Jesus and his character and the way that we relate to our husbands and our wives. God, give us the grace to see one another as heirs together and to show honor in light of that truth. We ask all of these things in Jesus' matchless name. And we say, amen.